Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 15 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 15. Tom Towers, Dr. Antikant, and Mr. Sentiment. Ah, Bold, how are you? You haven't breakfasted? Oh, yes, hours ago. And how are you? When one Eskimo meets another, do the two, as an invariable rule, ask after each other's health? Is it inherent in all human nature to make this obliging inquiry? Did any reader of this tale ever meet any friend or acquaintance without asking some such question, and did anyone ever listen to the reply? Sometimes a studiously courteous questioner will show so much thought in the matter as to answer it himself, by declaring that had he looked at you, he needn't have asked, meaning thereby to signify that you are an absolute personification of health, but such persons are only those who premeditate small effects. "'I suppose you're busy?' inquired Bold. "'Why, yes, rather, or I should say rather not. If I have a leisure hour in the day, this is it.' I want to ask if you can oblige me in a certain matter. Towers understood in a moment, from the tone of his friend's voice, that the certain matter referred to the newspaper. He smiled and nodded his head, but made no promise. You know this lawsuit that I've been engaged in, said Bold. Tom Towers intimated that he was aware of the action which was pending about the hospital. Well, I've abandoned it. Tom Towers merely raised his eyebrows, thrust his hands into his trousers' pockets, and waited for his friend to proceed. "'Yes, I've given it up. I needn't trouble you with all the history, but the fact is that the conduct of Mr. Harding—Mr. Uh, Harding is the—oh, yes, the master of the place, the man who takes all the money and does nothing,' said Tom Towers, interrupting him. "'Well, I don't know about that.' But his conduct in the matter has been so excellent, so little selfish, so open, that I cannot proceed in the matter to his detriment. Bold's heart misgave him as to Eleanor as he said this, and yet he felt that what he said was not untrue. I think nothing should now be done till the wardenship be vacant. And be filled again, said Towers, as it certainly would before anyone heard of the vacancy, and the same objection would again exist. It's an old story, that of the vested rights of the incumbent, but suppose the incumbent has only a vested wrong, and that the poor of the town have a vested right, if they only knew how to get at it. Is not that something the case here? Bold couldn't deny it, but thought it was one of those cases which required a good deal of management before any real good could be done. It was a pity that he had not considered this before he crept into the lion's mouth, in the shape of an attorney's office. "'It will cost you a good deal, I fear,' said Towers. "'A few hundreds,' said Bold. "'Perhaps three hundred. I can't help that, and I'm prepared for it.' 
that's philosophical. It's quite refreshing to hear a man talking of his hundreds in so purely indifferent a manner. But I'm sorry you're giving the matter up. It injures a man to commence a thing of this kind and not carry it through. Have you seen that? And he threw a small pamphlet across the table, which was all but damp from the press. Bold had not seen it nor heard of it, but he was well acquainted with the author of it, a gentleman whose pamphlets, condemnatory of all things in these modern days, had been a good deal talked about of late. Dr. Pessimist Antikant was a Scotchman who had passed a great portion of his early days in Germany. He'd studied there with much effect, and had learnt to look with German subtlety into the root of things, and to examine for himself their intrinsic worth and worthlessness. No man ever resolved more bravely than he to accept as good nothing that was evil, to banish from him as evil nothing that was good. Tis a pity that he should not have recognized the fact that in this world no good is unalloyed, and that there is but little evil that has not in it some seed of what is goodly. Returning from Germany, he had astonished the reading public by the vigor of his thoughts, put forth in the quaintest language. He cannot write English, said the critics. No matter, said the public. We can read what he does write, and that without yawning. And so Dr. Pessimist Antikant became popular. Popularity spoiled him for all further real use, as it has done many another. While with some diffidence he confined his objurgations to the occasional follies or shortcomings of mankind, while he ridiculed the energy of the squire devoted to the slaughter of partridges, or the mistake of some noble patron who turned a poet into a gauger of beer-barrels, it was all the well. We were glad to be told our faults, and to look forward to the coming millennium, when all men, having sufficiently studied the works of Dr. Antikant, would become truthful and energetic. But the doctor mistook the signs of the times in the minds of the men, instituted himself censor of things in general, and began the great task of reprobating everything and everybody, without further promise of any millennium at all. This was not so well, and to tell the truth our author did not succeed in his undertaking. His theories were all beautiful, and the code of morals that he taught us certainly an improvement on the practices of the age. We all of us could, and many of us did, learn much from the doctor while he chose to remain vague, mysterious, and cloudy, but when he became practical, the charm was gone. His allusion to the poet and the partridges was received very well. "'Oh, my poor brother,' said he, "'slaughtered partridges a score of brace to each gun, and poets gauging ale-barrels with sixty pounds a year at Dumfries are not the signs of a great era.' perhaps of the smallest possible era yet written of. Whatever economies we pursue, political or other, let us see at once that this is the maddest of the uneconomic. Partridges killed by our land magnates at, shall we say, a guinea a head, to be retailed in Leadenhall at one shilling and ninepence, with one poacher in limbo for every fifty birds. Our poet, maker, creator, gauging ale, and that badly, with no leisure for making or creating, only a little leisure for drinking, and such like beer-barrel avocations. Truly, a cutting of blocks with fine razors, while we scrape our trins so uncomfortably with rusty knives. Oh, my political economist, master of supply and demand, division of labor and high pressure, oh, my loud-speaking friend, tell me, 
if so much be in you what is the demand for poets in these kingdoms of queen victoria and what the vouchsafed supply this was all very well this gave us some hope we might do better with our next poet when we got one and though the partridges might not be abandoned something could perhaps be done as to the poachers we were unwilling however to take lessons in politics from so misty a professor and when he came to tell us that the heroes of westminster were not we began to think that he had written enough his attack upon dispatch boxes was not thought to have much in it but as it is short the doctor shall again be allowed to speak his sentiments could utmost ingenuity in the management of red tape avail anything to men lying gasping we may say all but dead could despatch-boxes with never so much velvet lining in chubb's patent be of comfort to a people in extremis i also with so many others would with parched tongue call on the name of lord john russell or my brother at your advice on lord aberdeen or my cousin on lord derby at yours being with my parched tongue indifferent to such matters tis all one o derby o gladstone o palmerston o lord john each comes running with serene face in despatch-box vain physicians though there were hosts of such no despatch-box will cure this disorder what are there other doctors new names disciples who have not burdened their souls with tape well let us call again o oh, disraeli great oppositionist man of the bitter brow or o oh, molesworth great reformer thou who promisest utopia they come each with that serene face and each alas me alas my country each with a despatch box oh the serenity of downing street my brothers when hope was over on the battlefield when no dimmest chance of victory remained the ancient roman could hide his face within his toga and die gracefully can you and i do so now if so twere best for us if not oh my brothers we must die disgracefully for hope of life and victory i see none left to us in this world below i for one cannot trust much to serene face and despatch box there might be truth in this there might be depth of reasoning but englishmen did not see enough in the argument to induce them to withdraw their confidence from the present arrangements of the government and dr antikin's monthly pamphlet on the decay of the world did not receive so much attention as his earlier works he did not confine himself to politics in these publications but roamed at large over all matters of public interest and found everything bad according to him nobody was true and not only nobody but nothing a man could not take off his hat to a lady without telling a lie the lady would lie again in smiling the ruffles of the gentleman's shirt would be fraught with deceit and the lady's flounces full of falsehood was ever anything more severe than that attack of his on chip bonnets or the anathemas with which he endeavoured to dust the powder out of the bishop's wigs the pamphlet which tom towers now pushed across the table was entitled modern charity and was written with the view of proving how much in the way of charity was done by our predecessors how little by the present age and it ended by a comparison between ancient and modern times very little to the credit of the latter 
look at this said towers getting up and turning over the pages of the pamphlet and pointing to a passage near the end your friend the warden who is so little selfish won't like that i fear bold read as follows heavens what a sight let us with eyes wide open see the godly man of four centuries since the man of the dark ages let us see how he does his godlike work and again how the godly man of these latter days does his shall we say that the former is one walking painfully through the world regarding as a prudent man his worldly work prospering in it as a diligent man will prosper but always with an eye to that better treasure to which thieves do not creep in is there not much nobility in that old man as leaning on his oaken staff he walks down the high street of his native town and receives from all courteous salutation and acknowledgment of his worth a noble old man my august inhabitants of belgrave square and such like vicinity a very noble old man though employed no better than in the wholesale carding of wool this carding of wool however did in those days bring with it much profit so that our ancient friend when dying was declared in whatever slang then prevailed to cut up exceeding well for sons and daughters there was ample sustenance with assistance of due industry for friends and relatives some relief for grief at this great loss for aged dependents comfort in declining years this was much for one old man to get done in that dark fifteenth century but this was not all coming generations of poor wool carders should bless the name of this rich one and a hospital should be founded and endowed with his wealth for the feeding of such of the trade as could not by diligent carding any longer duly feed themselves twas thus that an old man in the fifteenth century did his godlike work to the best of his power and not ignobly as appears to me we will now take our godly man of latter days he shall no longer be a wool carder for such are not now men of mark we will suppose him to be one of the best of the good one who has lacked no opportunities our old friend was after all but illiterate our modern friend shall be a man educated in all seemly knowledge he shall in short be that blessed being a clergyman of the church of england and now in what perfectest manner does he in this lower world get his godlike work done and put out of hand heavens in the strangest of manners oh my brother in a manner not at all to be believed but by the most minute testimony of eyesight he does it by the magnitude of his appetite by the power of his gorge his only occupation is to swallow the bread prepared with so much anxious care for these impoverished carters of wool that and to sing indifferently through his nose once in the week some psalm more or less long the shorter the better we should be inclined to say oh my civilized friends great britons that never will be slaves men advanced to infinite state of freedom and knowledge of good and evil tell me will you what becoming monument you will erect to a highly educated clergyman of the church of england bold certainly thought that his friend would not like that he could not conceive anything that he would like less than this to what a world of toil and trouble had he bold given rise by his indiscreet attack upon the hospital you see said towers 
that this affair has been much talked of and the public are with you i'm sorry you should give the matter up have you seen the first number of the almshouse no bold had not seen the almshouse he'd seen advertisements of mr popular sentiment's new novel of that name but he had in no way connected it with barchester hospital and had never thought a moment on the subject as a direct attack on the whole system said towers it'll go a long way to put down rochester and barchester and dulwich and st cross and all such hotbeds of peculation it's very clear that sentiment has been down to barchester and got up the whole story there indeed i thought he must have had it all from you it's very well done as you'll see his first numbers always are bold declared that mr sentiment had got nothing from him and that he was deeply grieved to find that the case had become so notorious the fire has gone too far to be quenched said towers the building must go now and as the timbers are all rotten why i should be inclined to say the sooner the better i expected to see you get some eclat in the matter this was all wormwood to bold he had done enough to make his friend the warden miserable for life and had then backed out just when the success of his project was sufficient to make the question one of real interest how weakly he had managed his business he had already done the harm and then stayed his hand when the good which he had in view was to be commenced how delightful would it have been to have employed all his energy in such a cause to have been backed by the jupiter and written up to by two of the most popular authors of the day the idea opened a view into the very world in which he wished to live to what might it not have given rise what delightful intimacies what public praise to what athenian banquets and rich flavour of attic salt this however was now past hope he had pledged himself to abandon the cause and could he have forgotten the pledge he had gone too far to retreat he was now this moment sitting in tom tower's room with the object of deprecating any further articles in the jupiter and greatly as he disliked the job his petition to that effect must be made i couldn't continue it said he because i found i was in the wrong tom towers shrugged his shoulders how could a successful man be in the wrong in that case said he of course you must abandon it and i called this morning to ask you also to abandon it said bold to ask me said tom towers with the most placid of smiles and a consummate look of gentle surprise as though tom towers was well aware that he of all men was the last to meddle in such matters yes said bold almost trembling with hesitation the jupiter you know has taken up the matter very strongly mr harding has felt what it has said deeply and i thought that if i could explain to you that he personally has not been to blame these articles might be discontinued how calmly impassive was tom tower's face as this innocent little proposition was made had bold addressed himself to the door-posts in mount olympus they would have shown as much outward sign of assent or dissent his quiescence was quite admirable his discretion certainly more than human my dear fellow said he when bold had quite done speaking i really cannot answer for the jupiter 
but if you saw that those articles were unjust i think that you would endeavour to put a stop to them of course nobody doubts that you could if you chose nobody and everybody are always very kind but unfortunately are generally very wrong come come towers said bold plucking up his courage and remembering that for eleanor's sake he was bound to make his best exertion i have no doubt in my own mind but that you wrote the articles yourself and very well written they were it will be a great favour if you will in future abstain from any personal allusion to poor harding my dear bold said tom towers i have a sincere regard for you i've known you for many years and value your friendship i hope you will let me explain to you without offence that none who are connected with the public press can with propriety listen to interference interference said bold i don't want to interfere ah but my dear fellow you do what else is it you think that i'm able to keep certain remarks out of a newspaper your information is probably incorrect as most public gossip on such subject is but at any rate you think i have such power and you ask me to use it now that is interference well if you choose to call it so and now suppose for a moment that i had this power and used it as you wish isn't it clear that it would be a great abuse certain men are employed in writing for the public press and if they are induced to either write or to abstain from writing by private motives surely the public press would soon be of little value look at the recognized worth of different newspapers and see if it does not mainly depend on the assurance which the public feel that such a paper is or is not independent you alluded to the jupiter surely you cannot but see that the weight of the jupiter is too great to be moved by any private request even though it should be made to a much more influential person than myself you've only to think of this and you'll see that i'm right the discretion of tom towers was boundless there was no contradicting what he said no arguing against such propositions he took such high ground that there was no getting on to it the public is defrauded said he whenever private considerations are allowed to have weight quite true thou greatest oracle of the middle of the nineteenth century thou sententious proclaimer of the purity of the press the public is defrauded when it is purposely misled poor public how often is it misled against what a world of fraud has it to contend bold took his leave and got out of the room as quickly as he could inwardly denouncing his friend tom towers as a prig and a humbug i know he wrote those articles said bold to himself i know he got his information from me he was ready enough to take my word for gospel when it suited his own views and to set mr harding up before the public as an impostor on no other testimony than my chance conversation but when i offer him real evidence opposed to his own views he tells me that private motives are detrimental to public justice confound his arrogance what is any public question but a conglomeration of private interests what is any newspaper article but an expression of the views taken by one side truth it takes an age to ascertain the truth of any question the idea of tom towers talking of public motives and purity of purpose why it wouldn't give him a moment's uneasiness to change his politics to-morrow if the paper required it such were john bold's inward exclamations as he made his way out of the quiet labyrinth of the temple 
and yet there was no position of worldly power so coveted in bold's ambition as that held by the man of whom he was thinking it was the impregnability of the place which made bold so angry with the possessor of it and it was the same quality which made it appear so desirable passing into the strand he saw in a bookseller's window an announcement of the first number of the almshouse so he purchased a copy and hurrying back to his lodgings proceeded to ascertain what mr popular sentiment had to say to the public on the subject which had lately occupied so much of his own attention in former times great objects were attained by great work when evils were to be reformed reformers set about their heavy task with grave decorum and laborious argument an age was occupied in proving a grievance and philosophical researches were printed in folio pages which it took a life to write and an eternity to read we get on now with a lighter step and quicker ridicule is found to be more convincing than argument imaginary agonies touch more than true sorrows and monthly novels convince when learned quartos fail to do so if the world is to be set right the work will be done by shilling numbers of all such reformers mr sentiment is the most powerful it is incredible the number of evil practices he has put down it is to be feared he will soon lack subjects and that when he has made the working classes comfortable and got bitter beer put into proper-sized pint bottles there will be nothing further for him left to do mr sentiment is certainly a very powerful man and perhaps not the less so that his good poor people are so very good his hard rich people so very hard and the genuinely honest so very honest namby-pamby in these days is not thrown away if it be introduced in the proper quarters divine peeresses are no longer interesting though possessed of every virtue but a pattern peasant or an immaculate manufacturing hero may talk as much twaddle as one of mrs ratcliffe's heroines and still be listened to perhaps however mr sentiment's great attraction is in his second-rate characters if his heroes and heroines walk upon stilts as heroes and heroines i fear ever must their attendant satellites are as natural as though one met them in the street they walk and talk like men and women and live among our friends a rattling lively life yes live and will live till the names of their calling shall be forgotten in their own and bucket and mrs gamp will be the only words left to us to signify a detective police officer or a monthly nurse the almshouse opened with a scene in a clergyman's house every luxury to be purchased by wealth was described as being there all the appearances of household indulgence generally found amongst the most self-indulgent of the rich were crowded into this abode here the reader was introduced to the demon of the book the mephistopheles of the drama what story was ever written without a demon what novel what history what work of any sort what world would be perfect without existing principles both of good and evil the demon in the almshouse was the clerical owner of this comfortable abode he was a man well stricken in years but still strong to do evil he was one who looked cruelly out of a hot passionate bloodshot eye who had a huge red nose with a carbuncle thick lips and a great double flabby chin which swelled out into solid substance like a turkey-cock's comb when sudden anger inspired him 
he had a hot furrowed low brow from which a few grizzled hairs were not yet rubbed off by the friction of his handkerchief he wore a loose unstarched white handkerchief black loose ill-made clothes and huge loose shoes adapted to many corns and various bunions his husky voice told tales of much daily port wine and his language was not so decorous as became a clergyman such was the master of mr sentiment's almshouse he was a widower but at present accompanied by two daughters and a thin and somewhat insipid curate one of the young ladies was devoted to her father in the fashionable world and she of course was the favourite the other was equally addicted to puseyism and the curate the second chapter of course introduced the reader to the more especial inmates of the hospital here were discovered eight old men and it was given to be understood that four vacancies remained unfilled through the perverse ill nature of the clerical gentleman with the double chin the state of these eight paupers was touchingly dreadful sixpence farthing a day had been sufficient for their diet when the almshouse was founded and on sixpence farthing a day were they still doomed to starve though food was four times as dear and money four times as plentiful it was shocking to find how the conversation of these eight starved old men in their dormitory shamed that of the clergyman's family in his rich drawing-room the absolute words they uttered were not perhaps spoken in the purest english and it might be difficult to distinguish from their dialect to what part of the country they belonged the beauty of the sentiment however amply atoned for the imperfection of the language and it was really a pity that these eight old men could not be sent through the country as moral missionaries instead of being immured and starved in that wretched almshouse bold finished the number and as he threw it aside he thought that that at least had no direct appliance to mr harding and that the absurdly strong colouring of the picture would disenable the work from doing either good or harm he was wrong the artist who paints for the million must use glaring colours as no one knew better than mr sentiment when he described the inhabitants of his almshouse and the radical reform which has now swept over such establishments has owed more to the twenty numbers of mr sentiment's novel than to all the true complaints which have escaped from the public for the last half century end of chapter fifteen recording by jessica louise st paul minnesota chapter sixteen of the warden this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope Chapter 16 A Long Day in London The Warden had to make use of all his very moderate powers of intrigue to give his son-in-law the slip and get out of Barchester without being stopped on his road. No schoolboy ever ran away from school with more precaution and more dread of detection. No convict, slipping down from a prison wall, ever feared to see the jailer more entirely than Mr. Harding did to see his son-in-law as he drove up in the pony carriage to the railway station on the morning of his escape to London. The evening before he went, he wrote a note to the archdeacon explaining that he should start on the morrow on his journey, 
that it was his intention to see the attorney-general if possible and to decide on his future plans in accordance with what he heard from that gentleman he excused himself for giving dr grantly no earlier notice by stating that his resolve was very sudden and having entrusted this note to eleanor with the perfect though not expressed understanding that it was to be sent over to plumstead episcopi without haste he took his departure he also prepared and carried with him a note for sir abraham haphazard in which he stated his name explaining that he was the defendant in the case of the queen on behalf of the wool carters of barchester versus trustees under the will of the late john hiram for so was the suit denominated and begged the illustrious and learned gentleman to vouchsafe to him ten minutes audience at any hour on the next day mr harding calculated that for that one day he was safe his son-in-law he had no doubt would arrive in town by an early train but not early enough to reach the truant till he should have escaped from his hotel after breakfast and could he thus manage to see the lawyer on that very day the deed might be done before the archdeacon could interfere on his arrival in town the warden drove as was his wont to the chapter hotel and coffee-house near st paul's his visits to london of late had not been frequent but in those happy days when harding's church music was going through the press he had been often there and as the publisher's house was in paternoster row and the printer's press in fleet street the chapter hotel and coffee-house had been convenient it was a quiet sombre clerical house beseeming such a man as the warden and thus he afterwards frequented it had he dared he would on this occasion have gone elsewhere to throw the archdeacon further off the scent but he did not know what violent steps his son-in-law might take for his recovery if he were not found at his usual haunt and he deemed it not prudent to make himself the object of a hunt through london arrived at his inn he ordered dinner and went forth to the attorney-general's chambers there he learnt that sir abraham was in court and would not probably return that day he would go direct from court to the house all appointments were as a rule made at the chambers the clerk could by no means promise an interview for the next day was able on the other hand to say that such interview was he thought impossible but that sir abraham would certainly be at the house in the course of the night where an answer from himself might possibly be elicited to the house mr harding went and left his note not finding sir abraham there he added a most piteous entreaty that he might be favoured with an answer that evening for which he would return he then journeyed back sadly to the chapter coffee-house digesting his great thoughts as best he might in a clattering omnibus wedged in between a wet old lady and a journeyman glazer returning from his work with his tools in his lap in melancholy solitude he discussed his mutton-chop and pint of port what is there in this world more melancholy than such a dinner a dinner though eaten alone in a country hotel may be worthy of some energy the waiter if you are known will make much of you the landlord will make you a bow and perhaps put the fish on the table if you ring you are attended to and there is some life about it a dinner at a london eating-house is also lively enough if it have no other attraction there's plenty of noise and stir about it and the rapid whirl of voices and rattle of dishes disperses sadness 
but a solitary dinner in an old respectable sombre solid london inn where nothing makes any noise but the old waiter's creaking shoes where one plate slowly goes and another slowly comes without a sound where the two or three guests would as soon think of knocking each other down as of speaking where the servants whisper and the whole household is disturbed if an order be given above the voice what can be more melancholy than a mutton-chop and a pint of port in such a place having gone through this mr harding got into another omnibus and again returned to the house yes sir abraham was there and was that moment on his legs fighting eagerly for the hundred and seventh clause of the convent custody bill mr harding's note had been delivered to him and if mr harding would wait some two or three hours sir abraham could be asked whether there was any answer the house was not full and perhaps mr harding might get admittance into the strangers gallery which admission with the help of five shillings mr harding was able to effect this bill of sir abraham's had been read a second time and passed into committee a hundred and six clauses had already been discussed and had occupied only four mornings and five evening sittings nine of the hundred and six clauses were passed fifty-five were withdrawn by consent fourteen had been altered so as to mean the reverse of the original proposition eleven had been postponed for further consideration and seventeen had been directly negatived the hundred and seventh ordered the bodily searching of nuns for jesuitical symbols by aged clergymen and was considered to be the real mainstay of the whole bill no intention had ever existed to pass such a law as that proposed but the government did not intend to abandon it till their object was fully attained by the discussion of this clause it was known that it would be insisted on with terrible vehemence by protestant irish members and is vehemently denounced by the roman catholic and it was justly considered that no further union between the parties would be possible after such a battle the innocent irish fell into the trap as they always do and whiskey and poplins became a drug in the market a florid-faced gentleman with a nice head of hair from the south of ireland had succeeded in catching the speaker's eye by the time that mr harding had got into the gallery and was denouncing the proposed sacrilege his whole face glowing with a fine theatrical frenzy and this is a christian country said he loud cheers counter cheers from the ministerial benches some doubt as to that from a voice below the gangway no it can be no christian country in which the head of the bar the legal adviser loud laughter and cheers yes i say the legal adviser of the crown great cheers and laughter can stand up in his seat in this house prolonged cheers and laughter and attempt to legalize indecent assaults on the bodies of religious ladies deafening cheers and laughter which were prolonged till the honourable member resumed his seat when mr harding had listened to this and much more of the same kind for about three hours he returned to the door of the house and received back from the messenger his own note with the following words scrawled in pencil on the back of it to-morrow ten p m my chambers a h he was so far successful but ten p m what an hour sir abraham had named for a legal interview mr harding felt perfectly sure that long before that dr grantly would be in london 
Dr. Grantley could not, however, know that his interview had been arranged, nor could he learn it unless he managed to get hold of Sir Abraham before that hour, and as this was very improbable, Mr. Harding determined to start from his hotel early, merely leaving word that he should dine out, and unless luck were much against him, he might still escape the archdeacon till his return from the attorney general's chambers. He was at breakfast at nine, and for the twentieth time consulted his Bradshaw to see at what earliest hour Dr. Grantley could arrive from Barchester. As he examined the columns, he was nearly petrified by the reflection that perhaps the archdeacon might come up by the night-mail train. His heart sank within him at the horrid idea, and for a moment he felt himself dragged back to Barchester without accomplishing any portion of his object. Then he remembered that had Dr. Grantley done so, he would have been in the hotel, looking for him long since. "'Waiter,' said he, timidly. The waiter approached, creaking in his shoes, but voiceless. "'Did any gentleman, a clergyman, arrive here by the night-mail train?' "'No, sir, not one,' whispered the waiter, putting his mouth nearly close to the warden's ear. Mr. Harding was reassured. Uh, waiter said he again and the waiter again creaked up if anyone calls for me i'm going to dine out and shall return about eleven o'clock the waiter nodded but did not this time vouchsafe any reply and mr harding taking up his hat proceeded out to pass a long day in the best way he could somewhere out of sight of the archdeacon Bradshaw had told him twenty times that Dr. Grantley could not be at Paddington Station till 2 p.m., and our poor friend might therefore have trusted to the shelter of the hotel for some hours longer with perfect safety. But he was nervous. There was no knowing what steps the archdeacon might take for his apprehension. A message by electric telegraph might desire the landlord of the hotel to set a watch upon him. Some letter might come which he might find himself unable to disobey. At any rate, he could not feel himself secure in any place at which the archdeacon could expect to find him, and at 10 a.m. he started forth to spend twelve hours in London. Mr. Harding had friends in town had he chosen to seek them, but he felt that he was in no humor for ordinary calls, and he did not now wish to consult with anyone as to the great step which he had determined to take. As he had said to his daughter, no one knows where the shoe pinches but the wearer. There are some points on which no man can be contented to follow the advice of another, some subjects on which a man can consult his own conscience only. Our warden had made up his mind that it was good for him at any cost to get rid of this grievance. His daughter was the only person whose concurrence appeared necessary to him, and she did concur with him most heartily. Under such circumstances he would not, if he could help it, consult anyone further, till advice would be useless. Should the archdeacon catch him, indeed, there would be much advice and much consultation of a kind not to be avoided, but he hoped better things, and as he felt that he could not now converse on indifferent subjects, he resolved to see no one till after his interview with the attorney general. He determined to take sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, so he again went thither in an omnibus, and finding that the doors were not open for morning service, he paid his tuppence and went in as a sightseer. 
it occurred to him that he had no definite place of rest for the day and that he should be absolutely worn out before his interview if he attempted to walk about from ten a m to ten p m so he sat himself down on a stone step and gazed up at the figure of william pitt who looks as though he had just entered the church for the first time in his life and was anything but pleased at finding himself there he had been sitting unmolested about twenty minutes when the verger asked him whether he wouldn't like to walk around mr harding didn't want to walk anywhere and declined merely observing that he was waiting for the morning service the verger seeing that he was a clergyman told him that the doors of the choir were now open and showed him into a seat this was a great point gained the archdeacon would certainly not come to morning service at westminster abbey even though he were in london and here the warden could rest quietly and when the time came duly say his prayers he longed to get up from his seat and examine the music books of the choristers and the copy of the litany from which the service was chanted to see how far the little details at westminster corresponded with those at barchester and whether he thought his own voice would fill the church well from the westminster precentor's seat there would however be impropriety in such meddling and he sat perfectly still looking up at the noble roof and guarding against the coming fatigues of the day by degrees two or three people entered the very same damp old woman who had nearly obliterated him in the omnibus or some other just like her a couple of young ladies with their veils down and gilt crosses conspicuous on their prayer books an old man on crutches a party who were seeing the abbey and thought they might as well hear the service for their tuppence as opportunity served and a young woman with her prayer-book done up in her handkerchief who rushed in late and in her hurried entry tumbled over one of the forms and made such a noise that every one even the officiating minor canon was startled and she herself was so frightened by the echo of her own catastrophe that she was nearly thrown into fits by the panic mr harding was not much edified by the manner of the service the minor canon in question hurried in somewhat late in a surplice not in the neatest order and was followed by a dozen choristers who were also not as trim as they might have been they all jostled into their places with a quick hurried step and the service was soon commenced soon commenced and soon over for there was no music and time was not unnecessarily lost in the chanting on the whole mr harding was of opinion that things were managed better at barchester though even there he knew that there was room for improvement it appears to us a question whether any clergyman can go through our church service with decorum morning after morning in an immense building surrounded by not more than a dozen listeners the best actors cannot act well before empty benches and though there is of course a higher motive in one case than the other still even the best of clergymen cannot but be influenced by their audience and to expect that a duty should be well done under such circumstances would be to require from human nature more than human power when the two ladies with the gilt crosses the old man with his crutch and the still palpitating housemaid were going mr harding found himself obliged to go too the verger stood in his way and looked at him and looked at the door and so he went but he returned again in a few minutes and re-entered with another tuppence there was no other sanctuary so good for him 
As he walked slowly down the nave, and then up one aisle, and then down the nave and up the other aisle, he tried to think gravely of the step he was about to take. He was going to give up eight hundred a year voluntarily, and doom himself to live for the rest of his life on about a hundred and fifty. He knew that he had hitherto failed to realize this fact as he ought to do. Could he maintain his own independence and support his daughter on a hundred and fifty pounds a year without being a burden on anyone? His son-in-law was rich, but nothing could induce him to lean on his son-in-law after acting, as he intended to do, in direct opposition to his son-in-law's counsel. The bishop was rich, but he was about to throw away the bishop's best gift, and that in a manner to injure materially the patronage of the giver. He could neither expect nor accept anything further from the bishop. There would be not only no merit, but positive disgrace in giving up his wardenship, if he were not prepared to meet the world without it. Yes, he must from this time forward bound all his human wishes for himself and his daughter to the poor extent of so limited an income. He knew he had not thought sufficiently of this, that he had been carried away by enthusiasm, and had hitherto not brought home to himself the full reality of his position. He thought most about his daughter, naturally. It was true that she was engaged, and he knew enough of his proposed son-in-law to be sure that his own altered circumstances would make no obstacle to such a marriage. Nay, he was sure that the very fact of his poverty would induce Bold more anxiously to press the matter. But he disliked counting on Bold in this emergency, brought on as it had been by his doing. He did not like saying to himself, Bold has turned me out of my house and income, and therefore he must relieve me of my daughter. He preferred reckoning on Eleanor as the companion of his poverty and exile, as the sharer of his small income. Some modest provision for his daughter had been long since made. His life was insured for three thousand pounds, and this sum was to go to Eleanor. The archdeacon, for some years past, had paid the premium, and had secured himself by the immediate possession of a small property, which was to have gone to Mrs. Grantley after her father's death. This matter, therefore, had been taken out of the warden's hands long since, and indeed had all the business transaction of his family, and his anxiety was therefore confined to his own life income. Yes, a hundred and fifty per annum was very small, but still it might suffice. But how was he to chant the litany at the cathedral on Sunday mornings, and get the service done at Crabtree Parva? True, Crabtree Church was not quite a mile and a half from the cathedral, but he could not be in two places at once. Crabtree was a small village, and afternoon service might suffice, but still this went against his conscience. It was not right that his parishioners should be robbed of any of their privileges on account of his poverty. He might, to be sure, make some arrangements for doing weekday service at the cathedral, but he had chanted the litany at Barchester so long, and had a conscious feeling that he did it so well, that he was unwilling to give up the duty. Thinking of such things, turning over in his own mind together small desires and grave duties, but never hesitating for a moment as to the necessity of leaving the hospital, Mr. Harding walked up and down the abbey, or sat still meditating on the same stone step, hour after hour. One verger went and another came, but they did not disturb him. 
every now and then they crept up and looked at him but they did so with a reverential stare and on the whole mr harding found his retreat well chosen about four o'clock his comfort was disturbed by an enemy in the shape of hunger it was necessary that he should dine and it was clear that he could not dine in the abbey so he left his sanctuary not willingly and betook himself to the neighbourhood of the strand to look for food his eyes had become so accustomed to the gloom of the church that they were dazed when he got out into the full light of day and he felt confused and ashamed of himself as though people were staring at him he hurried along still in dread of the archdeacon till he came to charing cross and then remembered that in one of its passages through the strand he had seen the words chops and steaks on a placard in a shop window he remembered the shop distinctly it was next door to a trunk cellar's and there was a cigar shop on the other side he couldn't go to his hotel for dinner which to him hitherto was the only known mode of dining in london at his own expense and therefore he would get a steak at the shop in the strand archdeacon grantly would certainly not come to such a place for his dinner he found the house easily just as he had observed it between the trunks and the cigars he was rather daunted by the huge quantity of fish which he saw in the window there were barrels of oysters hecatombs of lobsters a few tremendous-looking crabs and a tub full of pickled salmon not however being aware of any connection between shellfish and iniquity he entered and modestly asked a slatternly woman who was picking oysters out of a great watery reservoir whether he could have a mutton chop and a potato the woman looked somewhat surprised but answered in the affirmative and a slipshod girl ushered him into a long back room filled with boxes for the accommodation of parties in one of which he took his seat in a more miserably forlorn place he could not have found himself the room smelt of fish and sawdust and stale tobacco smoke with a slight taint of escaped gas everything was rough and dirty and disreputable the cloth which they put before him was abominable the knives and forks were bruised and hacked and filthy and everything was impregnated with fish he had one comfort however he was quite alone there was no one there to look on his dismay nor was it probable that any one would come to do so it was a london supper-house about one o'clock at night the place would be lively enough but at the present time his seclusion was as deep as it had been in the abbey in about half an hour the untidy girl not yet dressed for her evening labours brought him his chop and potatoes and mr harding begged for a pint of sherry he was impressed with an idea which was generally prevalent a few years since and is not yet wholly removed from the minds of men that to order a dinner at any kind of inn without also ordering a pint of wine for the benefit of the landlord was a kind of fraud not punishable indeed by law but not the less abominable on that account mr harding remembered his coming poverty and would willingly have saved his half-crown but he thought he had no alternative and he was soon put in possession of some horrid mixture procured from the neighbouring public-house his chop and potatoes however were eatable and having got over as best he might the disgust created by the knives and forks he contrived to swallow his dinner he was not much disturbed one young man with a pale face and watery fish-like eyes wearing his hat ominously on one side did come in and stare at him and asked the girl audibly enough who that old cock was 
but the annoyance went no further, and the warden was left seated on his wooden bench in peace, endeavouring to distinguish the different scents arising from lobsters, oysters, and salmon. Unknowing as Mr. Harding was in the ways of London, he felt that he had somehow selected an ineligible dining-house, and that he had better leave it. It was hardly five o'clock. How was he to pass the time till ten? Five miserable hours! He was already tired, and it was impossible that he should continue walking so long. He thought of getting into an omnibus and going out to Fulham for the sake of coming back in another. This, however, would be weary work, and as he paid his bill to the woman in the shop, he asked her if there were any place near where he could get a cup of coffee. Though she did keep a shellfish supper-house, she was very civil, and directed him to the cigar divan on the other side of the street. Mr. Harding had not a much correcter notion of a cigar divan than he had of a London dinner-house, but he was desperately in want of rest, and went as he was directed. He thought he must have made some mistake when he found himself in a cigar-shop, but the man behind the counter saw immediately that he was a stranger, and understood what he wanted. "'One shilling, sir. Thank you, sir. Cigar, sir. Ticket for coffee, sir. You'll only have to call the waiter. Up those stairs, if you please, sir. Better take the cigar, sir. You can always give it to a friend, you know. Well, sir, thank you, sir. As you are so good, I'll smoke it myself.' And so Mr. Harding ascended to the divan, with his ticket for coffee, but minus the cigar. The place seemed much more suitable to his requirements than the room in which he had dined. There was, to be sure, a strong smell of tobacco, to which he was not accustomed, but after the shellfish the tobacco did not seem disagreeable. There were quantities of books and long rows of sofas. What on earth could be more luxurious than a sofa, a book, and a cup of coffee? an old waiter came up to him with a couple of magazines and an evening paper. Was ever anything so civil? Would he have a cup of coffee, or would he prefer sherbet? Sherbet? Was he absolutely in an eastern divan, with the slight addition of all the London periodicals? He had, however, an idea that sherbet should be drunk sitting cross-legged, and as he was not quite up to this, he ordered the coffee. The coffee came, and was unexceptionable. Why, this divan was a paradise! The civil old waiter suggested to him a game of chess. Though a chess player he was not equal to this, so he declined, and, putting up his weary legs on the sofa, leisurely sipped his coffee and turned over the pages of his blackwood. He might have been so engaged for about an hour, for the old waiter enticed him to a second cup of coffee, when a musical clock began to play. Mr. Harding then closed his magazine, keeping his place with his finger, and lay, listening with closed eyes to the clock. Soon the clock seemed to turn into a violoncello with piano accompaniments, and Mr. Harding began to fancy the old waiter was the Bishop of Barchester. He was inexpressibly shocked that the Bishop should have brought him his coffee with his own hands. Then Dr. Grantly came in with a basket full of lobsters, which he would not be induced to leave downstairs in the kitchen, and then the warden couldn't quite understand why so many people would smoke in the bishop's drawing-room, and so he fell fast asleep, and his dreams wandered away to his accustomed stall in Barchester Cathedral, and the twelve old men he was so soon about to leave forever. He was fatigued, and slept soundly for some time. 
some sudden stop in the musical clock woke him at length and he jumped up with a start surprised to find the room quite full it had been nearly empty when his nap began with nervous anxiety he pulled out his watch and found that it was half-past nine he seized his hat and hurrying downstairs started at a rapid pace for lincoln's inn it still wanted twenty minutes to ten when the warden found himself at the bottom of sir abraham's stairs so he walked leisurely up and down the quiet inn to cool himself. It was a beautiful evening at the end of August. He had recovered from his fatigue, his sleep and the coffee had refreshed him, and he was surprised to find that he was absolutely enjoying himself when the inn clock struck ten. The sound was hardly over before he knocked at Sir Abraham's door, and was informed by the clerk who received him that the great man would be with him immediately. End of chapter 16. Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota. Chapter 17 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 17. Sir Abraham Haphazard. Mr. Harding was shown into a comfortable inner sitting room looking more like a gentleman's book-room than a lawyer's chambers, and there waited for Sir Abraham. Nor was he kept waiting long. In ten or fifteen minutes he heard a clatter of voices speaking quickly in the passage, and then the attorney-general entered. "'Very sorry to keep you waiting, Mr. Warden,' said Sir Abraham, shaking hands with him, "'and sorry, too, to name so disagreeable an hour, but your notice was short, "'and as you said to-day, I named the very earliest hour that was not disposed of.' "'Mr. Harding assured him that he was aware that it was he that should apologize. "'Sir Abraham was a tall, thin man, with hair prematurely grey, but bearing no other sign of age. "'He had a slight stoop, in his neck rather than his back.' acquired by his constant habit of leaning forward as he addressed his various audiences. He might be fifty years old, and would have looked young for his age, had not constant work hardened his features, and given him the appearance of a machine with a mind. His face was full of intellect, but devoid of natural expression. You would say he was a man to use, and then have done with a man to be sought for on great emergencies but ill-adapted for ordinary services a man whom you would ask to defend your property but to whom you would be sorry to confide your love he was bright as a diamond and as cutting and also as unimpressionable he knew everyone whom to know was an honour but he was without a friend he wanted none however and knew not the meaning of the word in other than its parliamentary sense a friend had he not always been sufficient to himself, and now, at fifty, was it likely that he should trust another? He was married, indeed, and had children, but what time had he for the soft idleness of conjugal felicity? His working days, or term times, were occupied from his time of rising to the late hour at which he went to rest, and even his vacations were more full of labor than the busiest days of other men. He never quarreled with his wife, but he never talked to her. He never had time to talk, he was so taken up with speaking. She, poor lady, was not unhappy. She had all that money could give her. She would probably live to be a peeress, and she really thought Sir Abraham the best of husbands. Sir Abraham was a man of wit, 
and sparkled among the brightest at the dinner-tables of political grandees. Indeed, he always sparkled, whether in society, in the House of Commons, or the courts of law. Coruscations flew from him, glittering sparkles as from hot steel, but no heat. No cold heart was ever cheered by warmth from him, no unhappy soul ever dropped a portion of its burden at his door. With him success alone was praiseworthy, and he knew none so successful as himself. No one had thrust him forward, no powerful friends had pushed him along on his road to power. No, he was attorney-general, and would, in all human probability, be Lord Chancellor by sheer dint of his own industry and his own talent. Who else in all the world rose so high with so little help? A premier, indeed. Who had ever been premier without mighty friends? An archbishop, yes, the son or grandson of a great noble, or else probably his tutor, but he, Sir Abraham, had had no mighty lord at his back. His father had been a country apothecary, his mother a farmer's daughter. Why should he respect any but himself? And so he glitters along through the world, the brightest among the bright, and when his glitter is gone, and he is gathered to his fathers, no eye will be dim with a tear, no heart will mourn for its lost friend. And so, Mr. Warden, said Sir Abraham, all our trouble about this lawsuit is at an end. Mr. Harding said he hoped so, but he didn't at all understand what Sir Abraham meant. Sir Abraham, with all his sharpness, could not have looked into his heart and read his intentions. "'All over. You need trouble yourself no further about it. Of course they must pay the costs, and the absolute expense to you and Dr. Grantley will be trifling. That is, compared with what it might have been, had, if it had been continued.' "'I fear I don't quite understand you, Sir Abraham.' "'Don't you know that their attorneys have noticed us that they've withdrawn the suit?' Mr. Harding explained to the lawyer that he knew nothing of this, although he had heard in a roundabout way that such an intention had been talked of, and he also at length succeeded in making Sir Abraham understand that even this did not satisfy him. The Attorney-General stood up, put his hands into his breeches' pockets, and raised his eyebrows, as Mr. Harding proceeded to detail the grievance from which he now wished to rid himself. I know I have no right to trouble you personally with this matter, but as it is of most vital importance to me, as all my happiness is concerned in it, I thought I might venture to seek your advice. Sir Abraham bowed and declared his clients were entitled to the best advice he could give them, particularly a client so respectable in every way as the warden of Barchester Hospital. A spoken word, Sir Abraham, is often of more value than volumes of written advice. Uh, the truth is, I am ill-satisfied with this matter as it stands at present. I do see, I cannot help seeing, that the affairs of the hospital are not arranged according to the will of the founder. None of such institutions are, Mr. Harding, nor can they be. The altered circumstances in which we live do not admit of it. Uh, quite true, that is quite true, but I can't see that those altered circumstances give me a right to eight hundred a year. I don't know whether I ever read John Hiram's will, but were I to read it now, I could not understand it. What I want you, Sir Abraham, to tell me is this. Am I, as warden, 
legally and distinctly entitled to the proceeds of the property after the due maintenance of the twelve beadsmen sir abraham declared that he couldn't exactly say in so many words that mr harding was legally entitled to etc 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 and ended in expressing a strong opinion that it would be madness to raise any further question on the matter as the suit was to be nay was abandoned mr harding seated in his chair began to play a slow tune on an imaginary violoncello nay my dear sir continued the attorney-general there is no further ground for any question i don't see that you have the power of raising it i can resign said mr harding slowly playing away with his right hand as though the bow were beneath the chair in which he was sitting what throw it up altogether said the attorney-general gazing with utter astonishment at his client did you see those articles in the jupiter said mr harding piteously appealing to the sympathy of the lawyer sir abraham said he had seen them this poor little clergyman cowed into such an act of extreme weakness by a newspaper article was to sir abraham so contemptible an object that he hardly knew how to talk to him as a rational being hadn't you better wait said he till dr grantly is in town with you wouldn't it be better to postpone any serious step till you can consult with him mr harding declared vehemently that he could not wait and sir abraham began seriously to doubt his sanity of course said the latter if you have private means sufficient for your wants and if this i haven't a sixpence sir abraham said the warden god bless me why mr harding how do you mean to live mr harding proceeded to explain to the man of law that he meant to keep his precentorship that was eighty pounds a year and also that he meant to fall back upon his own little living of crabtree which was another eighty pounds that to be sure the duties of the two were hardly compatible but perhaps he might effect an exchange and then recollecting that the attorney-general would hardly care to hear how the service of a cathedral church is divided among the minor canons stopped short in his explanations sir abraham listened in pitying wonder i really think mr harding you'd better wait for the archdeacon this is a most serious step one for which in my opinion there is not the slightest necessity and as you have done me the honour of asking my advice i must implore you to do nothing without the approval of your friends a man is never the best judge of his own position a man is the best judge of what he feels himself i'd sooner beg my bread till death than read such another article as those two that have appeared and feel as i do that the writer has truth on his side have you not a daughter mr harding an unmarried daughter i have said he now standing also but still playing away on his fiddle with his hand behind his back i have sir abraham and she and i are completely agreed on this subject pray excuse me mr harding if what i say seems impertinent but surely it is you that should be prudent on her behalf she is young and does not know the meaning of living on an income of hundred and sixty pounds a year on her account give up this idea believe me it is sheer quixotism the warden walked away to the window and then back to his chair and then irresolute what to say took another turn to the window the attorney-general was really extremely patient but he was beginning to think that the interview had been long enough
but if this income be not justly mine what if she and i have both to beg said the warden at last sharply and in a voice so different from that he had hitherto used that sir abraham was startled if so it would be better to beg my dear sir nobody now questions its justness yes sir abraham one does question it the most important of all witnesses against me i question it myself my god knows whether or no i love my daughter but i would sooner that she and i should both beg than that she should live in comfort on money which is truly the property of the poor it may seem strange to you sir abraham it is strange to myself that i should have been ten years in that happy home and not have thought of these things till they were so roughly dinned into my ears i cannot boast of my conscience when it required the violence of a public newspaper to awaken it but now that it is awake i must obey it when i came here i did not know that the suit was withdrawn by mr bold and my object was to beg you to abandon my defence as there is no action there can be no defence but it is at any rate as well that you should know that from to-morrow i shall cease to be the warden of the hospital my friends and i differ on this subject sir abraham and that adds much to my sorrow but it cannot be helped and as he finished what he had to say he played up such a tune as never before had graced the chambers of any attorney-general he was standing up gallantly fronting sir abraham and his right arm passed with bold and rapid sweeps before him as though he were embracing some huge instrument which allowed him to stand thus erect and with the fingers of his left hand he stopped with preternatural velocity a multitude of strings which ranged from the top of his collar to the bottom of the lappet of his coat sir abraham listened and looked in wonder as he had never before seen mr harding the meaning of these wild gesticulations was lost upon him but he perceived that the gentleman who had a few minutes since been so subdued as to be unable to speak without hesitation was now impassioned nay almost violent you'll sleep on this mr harding and to-morrow i have done more than sleep upon it said the warden i have lain awake upon it and that night after night i found i could not sleep upon it now i hope to do so the attorney-general had no answer to make to this so he expressed a quiet hope that whatever settlement was finally made would be satisfactory and mr harding withdrew thanking the great man for his kind attention mr harding was sufficiently satisfied with the interview to feel a glow of comfort as he descended into the small old square of lincoln's inn it was a calm bright beautiful night and by the light of the moon even the chapel of lincoln's inn and the sombre row of chambers which surrounded the quadrangle looked well he stood still a moment to collect his thoughts and reflect on what he had done and was about to do he knew that the attorney-general regarded him as little better than a fool but that he did not mind he and the attorney-general had not much in common between them he knew also that others whom he did care about would think so too but eleanor he was sure would exult in what he had done and the bishop he trusted would sympathize with him in the meantime he had to meet the archdeacon and so he walked slowly down chancery lane and along fleet street feeling sure that his work for the night was not yet over when he reached the hotel he rang the bell quietly and with a palpitating heart 
he almost longed to escape round the corner and delay the coming storm by a further walk around St. Paul's churchyard. But he heard the slow, creaking shoes of the old waiter approaching, and he stood his ground manfully. End of chapter 17 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.